Amen. Okay, tonight we're finishing up the um, teaching on intercession, and then we'll be starting a new series um, next week in talking about um, how we share Yeshua and some of the difficulties or challenges that, that can come about from that. And so we hope you are here for that. I won't be teaching the first session of that, but we'll be having, um, I believe, about four sessions going in through the first part of June with that. So tonight we're going to finish up with Yeshua's prayer. Um, most of us, when we think of the Lord's prayer, we probably think of the Our Father, but the prayer that we're going to look at tonight is the prayer in John chapter 17. And uh, if I could get someone who's willing to read that, it's John 17, verses 1 through 26. Sure. Um, I didn't know who's all in the room. Usually I cheat ahead of time and say, David, who's here tonight? So um, whoever would like to read, is that's fine. Rachel is here tonight. Okay. We can pick on Rachel then. What were the verses again? Um, John chapter 17, the entire chapter, verses 1 through 26. They are not of the world. 
that the Lord knows that he has cleansed me and have loved them, even as you have loved me. Father, I'm not that you have given me to be with me where I am and to see my glory. The glory that you have given me because you loved me before the creation of the world. Righteous Father, though the world does not know you, I know you, and they know that you have sent me. I have made you known to them and will continue to make you known in order that the love you have for me may be in them and that I myself may be in them. Thank you. So we've been looking at several of the prayers over the last few weeks. Um, We've looked at Moses, we've looked at Ezra and Nehemiah, and we've looked at Daniel. And Yeshua is kind of the culmination in many ways because his prayer is very different from some of the prayers we've been looking at. And to do an exhaustive study of this prayer would probably take a good month to really break it and tease out everything that is here There's so much that this prayer has to talk about and so much that the word is saying in these 26 verses. Um, We'll see what we can get through tonight. Um, We want to also look ahead of, uh, I mean not ahead, but behind, in a sense, what was going on leading up to this point in Yeshua's ministry and also looking at a brief overview of the Gospel of John. John's Gospel is somewhat different than from the other Gospels. The other Gospels, uh, if you're not aware of it, are the synoptic Gospels. But John had a different purpose. It was a Gospel that was written much later after Yeshua had died and after many events had taken place in first century history. John kind of has um, a, a, a purpose in his Gospel that he's dealing with something called Gnosticism. Does anyone here know what that word is? Besides the rabbi. I know Rabbi Ham does. Does anyone know what Gnosticism is about? Well, Gnosticism has to do with knowledge or learning things through knowledge. And many times it's referred to, even today, as the secret knowledge. The secret knowledge. And even in this prayer toward the end we have a little bit of reference to that. That he said things to the disciples that, for instance, someone like my father who's into the New Age would say, uh, Yeshua, Yeshua even makes reference in this prayer to secret knowledge that he imparted just to the disciples. Secret knowledge. And that's kind of what John is getting at. Gnosticism had more than just secret knowledge. It also had to do with the belief that what happened in the physical, didn't affect what happened in the spiritual. And so John is trying to, um, that's part of the purpose of his gospel, is to address some of these different issues that have been coming up. Also, John's gospel is concentrating on Yeshua's ministry to Judea and Jerusalem. Throughout his gospel, he has many dialogues with different people. We see um, pre-believers and potential believers that he has these dialogues with all the way through chapter from chapter one to chapter six. And at the end of chapter five and going forward to chapter 12, we see Yeshua having many discourses with um, the, the spiritual Jewish authorities of the day, whether it's the Pharisees, the Sadducees or, or other groups that, that question who he really is and what power he really had. 
And so we see that throughout John's gospel, all these different discourses, and in which Yeshua both corrected and instructed the Pharisees on who he was and how he was different than maybe the Messiah they were expecting to have. So toward this section of the Gospel of John, we are coming to, it's the Seder has now taken place with his disciples, and Yeshua has been discoursing back and forth with them. And now he makes a prayer before he enters Gethsemane. As you read in chapter 18, he comes to Gethsemane, or the place on the Mount of Olives. And before he does, he makes this prayer. And this prayer covers quite a different many issues. And one of the things, first and foremost, that Yeshua prays for, or prays about, Yeshua prays for himself. And that's something that's something very different and distinct than I think than what we've seen in most of the other prayers. In most of the other prayers, we've seen our sins, our issues, our things. But Yeshua knows that God has given him something very important to accomplish. And he makes intercession even for himself. And I don't know how many of you understand that part of intercession is even learning to pray for ourselves is that God wants to use us. We have assignments particularly that we need to be clear about when we go forth, and we need, to, we need to be able to come to the Lord and say, help me to be able to accomplish what you're doing. Now, I know Yeshua had a different calling and a different ministry, and a lot of times it's hard to see him apart from the God role. Sometimes people always say, well, why would Yeshua pray for himself? He was God, right? But Yeshua was also man. And that's something that a lot of people don't understand. There's a big ministry which Yeshua had as a man. And being a man, he humbled himself or he decided to limit what he could do as a man. And so therefore, he didn't necessarily sin, but he had the same body, the same understanding as men do. And he was very limited as God in that way. But I think that's something that we have a hard time seeing because we see Yeshua as God, which we should see him as God. But we also need to understand that he had a human aspect of who he was and how he served. And because of that human aspect, there are times that we need to understand that his prayer, for, even for himself, is important. His prayer to be able to pray for himself is, is a different type of prayer. It has a different uh, perspective in why he's choosing to pray that way. Now, in, the, in this point, he mentions the word glorify, glorify, and glory. And about seven times that I count, in the whole passage, in the whole 26 verses, um, specifically down toward the end in the last section in, in 24 through 26, he mentions it twice, but here in the first few verses, he mentions it four or five times. The Hebrew word for glory is the word kavod. And I, don't, I hope that's right. K apostrophe V-O-D, is that right? And part of that understanding of the word kavod is understanding how God, part of it is how we see God, how God 
is honored, how God is magnified. God comes across very beautiful and very big so that we'll understand who he is. We'll understand how his glory works. And one of the, one of the passages I want to look at specifically that shows us is um, in Ezekiel. When Ezekiel sees the vision, he sees how beautiful and bright the beings are. The beings of the wheels within the wheels. And part of that beauty is how it's expressed. They were shimmering. They were bright. They were beautiful. They glittered. It's kind of the expression of how God was glorifying them. Let's look at that passage in Ezekiel chapter 1 and verses 13 to 16. chapter 1 and verses 13 to 16. That's fine. Yes. As I gazed on the living creatures, I saw wheels on the ground, one next to each of the four-faced living creatures. All four wheels looked the same. Their inner parts gleamed like beryl, and the structure seemed to be that of a wheel inside a wheel. When they moved, they could go in any of the four directions without turning as they moved. These rings were tall and fearsome because the rings of all four were full of eyes all around. When the living creatures moved, the wheels moved along with them. And when the creatures were lifted off the ground, the wheels went with them. To where? That's fine, that's fine. So part of the color, part of the, the spectacular side of these creatures is how beautiful God made them, how bright, how beautiful, how glorious he made them. It's as if he took part of his glory and gave it to them, gave it so that they would look beautiful and glorious. And God does the same and calls the same of his people. One of the best examples that we can look at how we're to be or how were to reflect the light of God is a mirror. If you ever look how a light comes to a mirror and how the light bounces off the mirror, it, it reflects the light in such a way that it almost looks like there's just as much light or the same amount of light that we would have from the original source. And that reflection is what God, I think, is referring to when he says, let your light shine, that you... that." That people may see your good works and glorify your Father in heaven. It's that he, we're not the source of that light, but we reflect that light as God gives us his light. 
and as we shine for him, that we almost look as bright as the source of light. It's very similar to the way the moon reflects the light of the sun and how sometimes you go outside and you see how bright the moon is. It reflects the beauty, the glory of a light. And it's, very, it's, a, very, it's a mystery in many ways how God allows his light to shine in us. But God magnifies his light. And one of the things that we've started to pray as a community here is that God would be magnified, that his very presence would be magnified here, that what happens here would be seen greatly to other people. And when we pray that God would be magnified, to me there's two things I think of. When you look at something under a magnifying glass, what does it look like? It's bigger, for one. And that's part of what we want God to be here. We always want God to be bigger so that people see him. And what happens when something gets bigger and you can see it more fully? You get more detail. That's right. You get more detail. And that's part of what Yeshua is also talking about here. The more detail. The knowledge in the sense of learning who Yeshua was. Maybe you didn't see something about him that you didn't know before. Maybe there's something that we hadn't seen or realized that we need to realize about Yeshua. Excuse me, Michael. Go ahead. What's amazing is that there have been times when folks who are free believers have come to Yeshua and have said that they've sensed presence of God in our service. It's absolutely right. It's absolutely right that they sense God's presence because he becomes the dominant thing on the screen. That's another part. When you magnify something, not only is it seen bigger, but it begins to fill the screen. It begins to push all the other details that maybe you had been thinking about or the background farther out. You understand that today, if you look today on these new gadgets that we sometimes have, and you're able to zoom. You're able to zoom in on something and see it in greater detail. That's part of what we want to see take place with Yeshua. That's part of what we want to pray when we pray that God be magnified. It's a huge part of the vision that we're trying to establish here of intercession, of intercession. Now, Yeshua goes on more, and one of the basic things he says here is he wants that everyone should know him and to know eternal life by him and to know God as the true God. This is a big, big part of the relationship with Yeshua. This is such an important aspect of John's prayer. I mean, we could take the entire night just to talk about this, but Yeshua... The word know here is part of where we get the word Gnosticism from. And I'm trying to remember the exact Greek here. Is it Gnosis? Yes. Gnosis is the word for the word know. And a lot of times people point to that word of saying, see, you have to understand, you have to comprehend Yeshua. But in Hebrew, the word yada has a different nuance. 
Does anybody know what they're talking about many times when we see the word yada? Well, it's talking about knowledge that's something that you learn kind of from experiences. From experiences. A lot of times what we experience is really the key understanding of what knowledge is about. How we sometimes go to, quote, the school of hard knocks to learn something. It's something that we learn through an experience that we have, through a situation, through a relationship that we have. And I wanted to look specifically at Jeremiah 22. In Jeremiah 22, this is a, a, a great story that you can definitely look at and study more about this story. This was the king who followed uh, Josiah, Josiah's son. And, and boy, I don't know why this is coming up. It seems to be the same verses, verses 13 to 16 of Jeremiah 22. And Jeremiah's son had a choice. What was he going to do? Was he going to start building his kingdom through more accumulation? Or what was, he, what was his heart going to be in how he served the Lord? Let's look at these verses, verses 13 to 16 of Jeremiah 22. So it wasn't through the building or the process of the relationship that he had with his space or how much he could get more in his house and how big his house was to be, but it was more in direction of what the relationship was to be here. That's what God is pointing out here. It's more of what that relationship is to know me, of doing the justice doing the judgment of doing what's right for people. That's the real relationship that God wants us to sometimes have with him that needs to come forth. And that's something we pray, that people would know who the Lord is, how to know him, how he has a way that can speak to them in such a way that is so important that they understand. It's almost like he's got their exact phone number. He knows their exact language so that he can speak directly into the situation. These two points, just the knowledge and the glorifying, that Yeshua wants to take place, like I said, we could focus on the entire night. Because it's such a part of what Yeshua is praying. Of what Yeshua wants people to get a hold of in serving him and living for him. It's an important piece of our walk with the Messiah. Now in the next section, in verses 6 through 12... Yeshua begins to address some of the other things that he wants his followers to do. And one of the things he is wanting to show them is he wants them to understand 
that there's a process of discipleship. Discipleship is simply learning to follow someone and learn from them. You follow after what they're doing and you learn from them. One of the most important scriptures that illustrates this point is 2 Timothy 2, verse 2. This verse I've kind of learned by heart because it's so important. And it says this, The things that you've learned among many witnesses, commit to faithful men that they in turn may be able to each reach others with this, with this gospel. And so part of the picture, you have four different groups of people that are involved in discipleship. You first have the witnesses. Those were the direct people who learned and saw the things firsthand. And then you have the faithful who take up these things. And then they learn to commit them to other men so that they can reach others. The fourth group. There's like four groups mentioned in this passage of how one feeds the other, the other feeds the second, the second feeds the third, and so on and so forth. That pattern of discipleship we see throughout the scriptures of how each rabbi, each person had someone that they poured into. Whether it was Paul who poured into Silas and Timothy and Titus, or whether it was Yeshua pouring into Andrew and Peter and John and James. Everybody has to have somebody that they pour into. And I hope that part of that picture, part of that understanding, is something that you understand in your own life. What we do here on Wednesday night and Shabbat is to definitely build you up and change you and help you grow. And I'm always pleased to see everyone who comes. But that's not enough. People have got to learn to feed themselves grow themselves in their own homes, take time for the word, take time to hear what other people have to say. Because not one person can say everything. Not one person. Haim, Haim says a lot, but he can't say everything. And so it's important that we have be open to what someone else might teach us, someone else may have to tell us, and what we may learn from another teacher. And so it's important that that kind of discipleship and the heart of that kind of discipleship take forth in our lives and in our hearts. That we don't just, it's, it's kind of like eating. You wouldn't just eat twice a week on Wednesday and Saturday. You should eat all week. And you should eat from the Lord the same way. It should be a lifestyle that you get a hold of each and every day that you want to hear something from the Lord. And part of that picture of the discipleship comes from getting into his word every day. Getting into his word. One of the scriptures I first learned as a believer is John 8, 31 and 32. It says this. Yeshua said to those disciples that believed on him, If you continue with my word, then you are truly my disciples. You will know the truth. And the truth will set you free. Now it's not a matter of just knowing that truth sets us free. We all know that verse. Or we've heard that verse many times. But part of the connection in hearing the truth. 
in getting hold of the truth is learning to do that first part, continuing in his word, taking time to dig roots in his word, to look into his word, to study his word, to read his word. And it's something that has to be a part of our very makeup, our very DNA in a sense, that we always understand that what the Lord wants to tell us in his word is very important. Part of the other point that Yeshua also says is he wants his disciples to guard. What does he want them to guard themselves from? Any idea? Maybe. But I really think the context here that Yeshua is looking for us to guard against is the world. The world is always going to pull at us. And Yeshua, I think, knew that struggle that would be present, that the world would constantly pull at us, constantly the world and its systems would look to always pull on us the cares of the world, the concerns, what the world thinks, what people think about us, how we look to people. All these things, you know, they can get us mashugi sometimes if we, that's all we think about. That's all we think about or all we care about. And part of the thing is we have to understand a basic thing about the world is that the world is going to fall apart one day. It's going to die and completely pass away. And John makes clear of this in his letter, his first letter, where he says, love not the world or the things of the world, because the love of the world is not part of the Father's love. All the things of the world, the the desires of your heart, the desires of what you see and the pride of life, all these things will eventually pass away. All these things. And this is what I think he's wanting us to guard against. The world is something that is always around us, something we get in contact with. And he's concerned about what our reaction will be to the world because the world is not a pretty place. You don't have to throw a stick very far to find that out. The world is very corrupt at times. There's a lot of evil things in the world. You look at the newspaper, turn on the news, go on the computer. It's bombarding at times and very overwhelming. And part of the thing for learning and being in his word and wanting to have that word in us is that we might be guarded and that we might be anchored to what we hear in his word instead of what we hear from the world. The world is always going to have a pull on us. Always going to have a pull on us. And I have the both two passages you can go and look at, the passage that I was quoting from, and especially from James and from 1 John 2, talking about how us as believers were to be different from what the world is. Our very identity is to be much different than what the world looks like today. In the world systems especially. Now, one of the important things that he builds on this idea, going into the next section of verses 13 through 19, is this idea, let's read specifically, if I could have someone read John 17, 15. Because this is an important thing, and, and I, 17, 15, and it's not because I'm, first of all, I'm not, I'm not looking to, to be uh, mean about something, but I think everybody has to 
to come to grips with this teaching at times in terms of where our relationship is with Yeshua here in the world. John seventeen fifteen. Part of the picture that believers have with Yeshua is that he doesn't, they don't understand that Yeshua wants to do things in their life in the here and now. A lot of us, when we first come to the Lord, we may want that get out of hell card. And I, I, would, be, I would believe that even many times we're motivated to come to Yeshua because we don't want to go to that awful place of torment. But the fact is, Yeshua wants to do things with us in this world. He doesn't have this idea that He saved us and we get to sit on our hands until we get to leave the world. A lot of people are waiting for that. A lot of people have that expectation. Yeshua is going to come and we're going to be out of here, man. And we won't have to worry about all this stuff anymore. And it's something, I may be going from a little bit of teaching to meddling here, but the fact is, we have to understand that we're here in the world for a purpose. We're here to be a light to the world. We're here to help bring about reconciliation and to touch those that are hurting in this broken area of the world. And that doesn't mean that we should just like check out of the world and embrace escapism or Embrace something else. Yeshua even understands this and says it earlier in John 16, 32, where he says, I know my father won't abandon me in the time of trouble that I'm coming up to. He knows that even going to the, the cross and the death, he knew that his father wouldn't abandon him. And he chooses never to abandon us either. He's willing to hold our hand and walk us through what we have to do in this world. And so no one gets to check out in his kingdom. It's an important thing. A lot of people are just waiting till God shows up and we can check out of here, man. Kind of like that day you leave the hotel, you know. We're here in the hotel and then we got to check out. But that's kind of more of what Yeshua is looking for us to understand is we don't get to check out here. We're here for the long haul until he comes back or until he decides to take us home. And the emphasis is that he wants us to be protected from both the evil of the world and from the evil one. Specifically here, it's speaking of the evil one who has very much corrupted the world and has very much uh, come about trying to destroy what has happened in the world. And it's something you should pray for people too. People need to pray, pray these things that they would be protected from the evil of the world. Or when evil things happen, that God would somehow show his redemptive purpose in that. It's a big thing. God wants to even redeem a lot of the evil stuff that's happened in the world. That has hurt some of us and why some of us are broken and so why some of us are have, have issues at times. But God wants to make sure that he, we're here in the world for a reason and he has good things to do while we're here in the world. And like in the other prayers in this section, 
Yeshua doesn't just speak about um, the, the world and the evilness that's there, but he also speaks about holiness. And we saw the holiness talked about in both Ezra, Daniel, and Nehemiah, especially when we looked at those prayers. But in those prayers, it was a bit different. It was a bit different take on it, a different slant. There was a lot of confession. Lord, this is where we blew it. Lord, this is why we're not pure. In this, in this prayer, Yeshua takes a positive aspect of the idea of holiness. He asks that we would be sanctified by the truth of the word. And it's a positive part, being sanctified. Now, one of the important things about sanctification is it is a process. I'm sure the oldest of us here in the room to the youngest of us in the room, and this isn't to slant anybody or make, we're all in that process of sanctification. We're all at a different place. We're all learning at different points. God has us all at different points on the path. And where I have sometimes seen believers struggle is when they come to other believers and they say, how come you're not all the way over here? You should know better. You should know better. You've been a believer this many years. You've been this way. But the fact is, it's a process for each person. Each person is called in a different way. Each person. And what sanctification at times should be about is about grace and love. How we treat each other as we learn to be sanctified. Instead of looking at the negative, we messed it up. How can we help this person be more sanctified? How can we walk with them in their struggle? How can we pray that they'd be sanctified? Instead, we're ready to rush in and let them know how they're not sanctified, how they need to be sanctified. And unfortunately, I've seen where a lot of people leave congregations and a lot of people break from that. Because they don't understand this idea that it's a process. It's a process of how we become sanctified. And sometimes it's a process that we're learning second by second. Sometimes it's a promise, a process we're learning minute by minute, day by day, hour by hour, week by week. It's a process. And we all have junk that needs to be cleaned up. But he wants us to learn that the true sanctification comes by hearing his word and letting the word change us and letting his spirit change us. It's not because I say, I'm going to change you. I'm going to make it so that you understand what holiness is about. Holiness is a process and it takes time and it takes a lot of love. It takes a lot of love at times. <clears throat> In the next section, Yeshua begins to talk Specifically, again, about what it means to have unity. And unity is a, is a theme throughout this uh, prayer. Unity is one of those funny things because it's on the one hand and on the other hand. And I hear giggles, and that's great, because on the one hand, we know we're supposed to pray for unity. 
right? Pray for unity. Today's, uh, today's May, May the 4th, so I put a 4 up there. They call it Star Wars Day. May the 4th be with you. Kind of a joke on, the, on that kind of thing. But the whole point is that we pray for unity, but we're also to, to um, endeavor in unity, or we're to do, make effort. We're to make effort for unity. It's an effort thing. Scripture tells us that, that we're to make an effort to make unity. So it's kind of one of these multifaceted things that we both make an effort for unity, but we pray for unity, right? And I bring up Star Wars again because there was a group of people called the clones. A lot of times the clones were thought to be the people that all looked the same, did the same job, had the same thoughts, did what they were supposed to do, and had the same type of uniforms, the all-white uniforms, you know? And that's a lot of times what people look at when they think of unity, that everything looks the same. Everything is the same. But unity is more than just how it looks on the outside. It's something of how it looks on the inside. And it's something that can only start from the inside. It's not something that we, that we fully can do on our own. It has to start first in our heart and learning to give our heart to the Lord. It's not something that we can just say, I want to make unity happen. But it's something that we do want to look to strive for and work for. And unity is mentioned at least four times in this prayer, as well as the connection, the connection that goes with unity. Part of the connection happens as we engage. Connection, you could say, equals engagement. As we engage with the Lord, we get connected to him. And we have that throughout this prayer over and over again. That they would be with me. That I would be in them. There's a constant connecting. Even though it doesn't say unity, unity, unity. There's an understanding that what you're connected to, what you're engaged to, that's what you're going to be learning to be united to. It's kind of like the yoke. When you're connected to the yoke, you learn how work is done. Or you're connected to a physical yoke like an ox was or a cow. But the point is, is that as you connect and engage with the Lord, you're going to understand his heart. You're going to understand his likes. You're going to understand what's right and what's wrong. And that's part of how unity happens and grows as sometimes as we're connected and we learn to engage. It's not about learning to be a clone or what we think is the right way it should look. It's about learning to have his heart first and foremost as our heart, a heart that steps in tune. Paul says it like this, follow me as I follow Messiah. And part of the picture of that is Paul didn't say you've got to be like me so that you can be like Messiah. He doesn't say that. He says, follow me as I follow Messiah. And part of that following is the way we learn to keep step. We keep step with the Spirit. 
Galatians talks about that keeping step with the Spirit. And it's actually a military term in how you follow after someone. You follow their steps as they lead. As they lead. And that's more of what unity is to look like, not the type of unity that we see in uniformity. Part of the other part of unity is understanding not all of us are called the same way. Not all of us come to the Lord the same way. And so it's okay if we're Jewish and we come to the Lord. It's okay if we're Gentile if we come to the Lord. It's okay if we're um, Haitian and we come to the Lord. It's okay if we're Korean and come to the Lord. However we come to the Lord, the Lord doesn't want us to lose that identity. He wants us to stay in connection with that identity and learn that as we've been called by the Lord, we're not supposed to change who we are or expect our body to be or our representation and identity to change. But the things that supposed to change is our heart and how we learn to engage and have that relationship with the Lord. That's the part that needs to grow. That's the part that's supposed to come with unity. And throughout this prayer, we have that covenant language again. And it points to ownership because we belong to him and he, I hope, belongs to us, right? So throughout this prayer, we have this emphasis, yours, mine, your people. And this is part of that connection that we see throughout the covenants. When we look at, for example, in Exodus, when Moses says, you brought your people from where they were and you brought them. And they, you took them out of one place and you brought them here. And we see that even in the new covenant. That they may be your people and I may be your God. Over and over again there's this emphasis of the mine yours because it's covenant language. It's part of understanding that with covenant comes relationship. A relationship. And we all have some kind of relationship with, with the Lord I hope. Otherwise, I hope you, you wouldn't be here or you wouldn't be engaged. Part of the relationship picture is ultimately that with relationship, you, you learn to engage and you learn to connect. I mean, we have, and I sometimes joke about this, we have a relationship with our mailman. We may not engage in that relationship every day. We may just say, the mail's not here, where's the mailman? You know? But it's still a connection in terms of it's still a relationship. It's a relationship. And what we put into that relationship a lot of times is what we get out of that relationship. And Yeshua is very impressed on how he wants people to be engaged in this relationship with him. How he wants them to know him. How he wants them to see his glory and to be glorified by this relationship. It's kind of how he ends the prayer and talks about what's important to his heart. And so I hope that as we've been studying these different intercessors and looking into God's word, it challenges you as intercessors to come and know how to pray to the Lord for people, to know how to pray for the congregation, to know how to pray for our leadership and our rabbi. I just pray that the Lord would do good works through what he's doing in these in these intercession in these intercession uh, examples and intercessory prayers we've been looking at, um, you know, with intercession sometimes there's aspects of it that you can't sit there and say, 
you intercess by doing this process, step one, step two, step three. Sometimes it's very visionary, and you have to catch it instead of, you know, or, or have it caught instead of taught. And so I hope this has been a good class and a good um, chance for you to take a snapshot of each of these intercessors and learn from what they've said. Rabbi Haim, did you have any thoughts or yes. talk about what the next class will look like? Or? Why don't we finish with prayer and then I'll, I'll take a couple minutes. Okay. Uh, Sylvia, would you pray for us? Sure. All right, thank you.